When we hear scripture read, we look for the light of Christ to shine in our lives and in our world. So would you say this simple prayer with me as we prepare our hearts to listen? Let all who hear make way. May these hearts prepare a place for God with us. Come safe. Tonight's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's one of the four biographies of Jesus in the Christian scriptures. Mary said, With all my heart I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with me on favor on the low status of his servant. Look, for now on everyone, for now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servants Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to our home. So I'll sit down at the end of like a long day or like a long week and I'll like get my tea and be cozy on the couch. And then I turn on the TV and I'm just overwhelmed by how many TV shows there are. And you scroll and you scroll and you scroll and I get so panicky. And so, and another factor, um, two other things that kind of stress me about out about choosing a new TV show um, is that I'm afraid that it's just not going to be good. You know, like take a risk, turn on a show. You could waste 20, 30, 40 minutes of your life. Um, And the other fear is if it's really, really good, and then I waste, like, the next week of my life because I can't do anything else except for watch the show. And I have been known when there's, like, eight seasons to a show, I'll watch the first two and then read episode summaries for the remainder of the seasons because I hate the power that it holds over me. Um, So, anyways, all that to say, the other week, I rewatched Downton Abbey part of Downton Abbey for like the hundredth time um, after a long day. And one of my favorite characters in that show is this woman named Lady Grantham. And she's this old, wise woman. She's a matriarch of the family. And if you can't picture her, she's the same actress that plays Professor McGonagall. So phenomenal character, phenomenal actress. And she really gets all the best one-liners in that show. And she usually often has these really witty things that she says, but this last episode that I watched, she actually had a much more serious and solemn quote that I, wasn't, that I hadn't really expected from her. But in this episode, she's talking to some Russian refugees who had fled during the formation of the Soviet Union, and she's disagreeing with a woman who's trying to encourage them to keep hoping, to keep the faith. She turns to them and says, no, hope is a tease designed to prevent us from accepting reality. Hope is a tease, designed to prevent us from accepting reality. According to Lady Grantham, hope is for the foolish. Those who aren't being realistic or reasonable. Hope is for the cowards, those who aren't being brave enough to face reality as it is. Hope is for the blind, those who really can't see what's in front of them. 
And if Lady Grantham had looked at Mary's situation, she would have likely given her the same solemn advice, to steer clear from hope and to simply face the reality of her situation. Mary's personal position in this story, at face value, showed no real reason for hope in a bright future. By declaring, may your word to me be fulfilled to the angel earlier in Luke 1.38, Mary is taking on the shame of being a young, unmarried, pregnant woman in a society that would have shamed and shunned her for it. And even after she marries Joseph and Jesus is born, would that mystery around that birth still linger? Would people still look at her with a curious, judgmental curiosity? And if we were to zoom out from Mary's situation and get a grasp for her social situation, Lady Grantham would have again come to the same conclusion. In the first few verses of Luke, we get a snapshot of where they are in history. At the mention of King Herod, in verse 5, the first readers and listeners of Luke would have immediately recalled the cruel and violent and oppressive nature of this man's reign. We get a glimpse of his violence in another book of scripture, Matthew 2, as he becomes the reason Jesus and his parents have to flee as refugees to Egypt, because this king heard a rumor that another king was born. But this King Herod was only a small part of an even greater political landscape at the time. The Jewish people were under Roman military occupation, so everyone was subject to the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. And the center that we get a glimpse of in Luke 2, the next chapter of this book, where the pregnant Mary and Joseph have to return to Joseph's town, was a way that the Roman Empire maintained control and power in the region, along with heavy taxation. So the oppressiveness and hopelessness of the situation seemed to be self-evident. Mary was a part of a powerless people under one of the most powerful empires. So hopelessness would have been understandable and, according to Lady Grantham, reasonable. Again, her personal situation, precarious, setting her up for shame, and her world situation, oppressive. She continued to face the Roman rule and abuse of her people. But the song that we just read that bursts forth from her in Luke 1 is a song of praise and of declaration of God's power. It's a proclamation of something greater than her seemingly hopeless circumstances. And when we look at Mary's song, the first four verses are all deeply personal. She uses personal pronouns throughout. I'm reading here from the NIV, so a different version than the one that we had up there. But it says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She recognizes a deeply personal way that God is moving. My parents run this kids' camp um, back home um, every year for missionary kids and kids that want to learn English in the region. My parents live in Turkey. And every year we get some kids that are also from surrounding countries. And one year we had this kid. He was about eight or nine years old, and uh, he was half Russian and half Turkish. And he was mostly at the camp to just practice speaking English. But during his time there, he began to become curious about God and ended up wanting to just explore what a relationship with him might look like. 
And he couldn't really speak English at the time, so he was paired with a counselor who could speak Russian. And as they were walking one afternoon, Timur, this kid, looks up at Andrew and says, could you ask God some things for me? Could you pray to God for me? And Andrew says, well, like, how about, would you want to pray to God yourself? Like, would you want to talk to him yourself? And Timur says, well, he, well, I don't speak English. And he was, <laughs> and Andrew says, no, God speaks Russian. He's super fluent, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, like, he can speak any language. He, he would love to hear you talk in Russian. And this kid, Timur, he was just blown away by the fact that this great God that he'd been hearing about all week actually knew his own language, that he'd be that personal, that he would know his language, his story, his home, where he's from. And so he just kept exclaiming over and over again how he couldn't believe God spoke Russian. And for the rest of their walk today, walk that day, he was just chatting away with God in Russian. It was great. But he was in awe of the fact that God was so personal. And looking at her own personal reality, Mary also seems to have this moment where she is in awe of what God has done for her personally. She declares in this song that Jesus, the promised Messiah whom all people had been waiting for, was making a difference in her life. She could recognize in her present reality that God was doing something new. And any shame she would experience would be seen in light of the honor and dignity and worth that God had bestowed upon her and called her and recognized in her. And any suffering to come would be seen in the light of the great things that God has done and was doing and would do for and through Mary. And she would still likely experience those stares or those whispers. And like Tina preached on a couple weeks ago, she would be giving her whole body and life to be raising Jesus and to walking through life with him. But we see here this hope that would ground her in whatever present reality she was facing. And as she goes on in the song through verses 50 and 57, she shifts her gaze from her present and personal life to what God is doing in and through the world. She recognizes that Jesus not only impacts her in her own life, but she sees that God is doing something new in the world around her. And even though she would remain under the oppressive Roman rule for all the rest of her days on this earth, she declares with authority and confidence that God has brought down rulers from their thrones. And even though she would be seen as unimportant and meaningless as a Jew for most of her life in that region, she declares that God has scattered those who are proud and lifted the lowly. Her present reality of personal and social shame and struggle and her present reality of being under an oppressive government and kings and emperors were seen through the lens of what Christ was doing. That God was fulfilling these promises and prophecies of old and declaring again what he would do, even in the face of what could easily have felt like a hopeless situation. I was working several years ago uh, at a refugee camp, camp in Greece, and I was struck often by how hopeless of a place it was. It was overcrowded with people waiting for months simply to get a tent or some kind of shelter. And there was one guy in particular I met that one of the summers I was there, Abbas. Um, and when I first met him, when he first got to the camp, he was joyful and excited and chatty. And he would often chat and joke with us who were working there. But every day he would come to our office to ask if there was a spot finally available for him somewhere else in the camp. He would ask because he was simply sleeping for most of the first months that we knew, knew him on a simple mat and blanket and pillow, because that was all that we could give people when they first arrived. 
But day after day, we had to say no again and again. And day after day, we saw the light dim in him a little bit after months of being in that situation. He became more somber and heavy as he seemed to come to terms with the reality with his powerlessness and helplessness in that situation. Hopelessness had begun to take root. There was another guy that I met there also who was about 18 when he got to the camp. And he had a similar situation as a bus, a young guy who came, and when he first got there, we could only give him that small mat and a blanket and a small pillow. And while in that camp, he ended up meeting Jesus and coming to faith in him. And we saw almost the opposite effect take hold of him. He became more and more joyful, more and more at peace in this kind of unexplainable way as he came to realize this hope in Christ. He came to realize that Jesus had actually seen him there in the camp personally and called him loved and worthy. And he came to realize how Jesus was changing the world, declaring that the way things are are not how things will be. And Mary, in her song, is struck in the same way, that Jesus, this baby in her room, was bringing about something new, that he was stirring up hope for her own story and hope for the world's. And I do want to just acknowledge that hope as exciting and thrilling as it can sound, is a really, really hard thing. I I know that the boy, uh, Sharif, who came to the Lord during his time in camp, still had days where he would go outside the camp and just weep over the sorrow of his situation, sorrow for his people that he was seeing. You can imagine that Mary, like we said, would have still had hard days. Even though, she, even though she declares this powerful song of hope, it all also probably played out differently than she'd imagined it would. Maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe you find it difficult to hope because hope can often lead easily to disappointment. Or maybe you've been living with depression and the actual chemicals of your brain make it hard to follow this line of thinking towards hope. Maybe the vulnerability of being honest and open with God about hard things in your life can also feel overwhelming and scary. Hope is vulnerable. Hope is scary. And whatever your relationship with hope is right now, I pray that you would sense God's gentleness and kindness as he's meeting you exactly where you are. Katie mentioned earlier this radical love of God's towards you, and I pray that you would sense that wherever you are in your relationship with the concept and with this invitation to hope. And I also pray that we would ask God to even open up our hearts a little bit more this evening to the invitation to hope in Mary's song. The passage that we've been spending time in, it's called Mary's Song, and it's also called the Magnificats in Latin. And it's a prayer that is used in several different denominations every time they gather They pray this and memorize it and have it be a part of their corporate worship together or even their private times of prayer as well. And I think one of the reasons is because this prayer brings us to a place of personal reflection on what the hope of Christ means for us. And it also lifts up our eyes to see what the hope of Christ means for the world. And the two categories of people that God lifts up and meets in this poem or in this song are those who are hungry and those who are humble. In verse 53, Mary declares that he has filled the hungry with good things. And I have been privileged enough in this life to not know what true physical hunger is. 
Maybe that's the same or different for you in this room. But I can imagine that there's a different kind of hunger that each of us have wrestled with deeply and in real ways throughout our lives. If we were to look at our own lives, where have we experienced deep hunger for healing or for freedom? Where have we experienced hunger for restoration of relationships that are broken? Where have we experienced a deep hunger for joy or for belonging or for connection? And if we were to lift up our eyes and look out into the world, where are we hungry to see justice restored? Or to see peace take root? And where do we see and acknowledge the real hungers of others in our community and in our worlds? Those deep areas of hunger in our lives are also often the areas that bring us to a deep place of humility. We are struck with the fact that we cannot simply snap our fingers and heal ourselves. Every time I ask my counselor, how do I just fix it? He just kind of like laughs. And I'm like, that's rude. We can do everything we can try to fix our broken relationships or problems or history or story, but come to the end of ourselves realizing that we can't control other people or even our own reactions sometimes. We can learn everything we can about a crisis. We are often still left at the end of the day feeling frustrated and heartbroken and overwhelmed by the issues that plague our communities and cities and countries and worlds. And in a world where this is the full and complete picture of reality, then we'd have to agree with Lady Grantham that hope would simply be a tease to keep us from facing and braving reality. This is it. We're stuck hungry and humbled and hopeless. But in the face of deepest hungers and in the face of our deepest humility and limitations, the Christian faith, through Mary's song and throughout the book of the Bibles, books of the Bible, names a different um, invitation to where this hunger and humility might lead us. They do not lead us to a place of hopelessness and despair, but to a place of hope. Hope in the God who came close. Hope in the God who still comes close to suffering. And hope in the God who wasn't swallowed up by death, but instead are bringing those who are dead into new life. And just as Jesus brought new life and hope to Mary in a deeply personal way, what Christ has done is meant to also meet us in a personal way as well. He is a God who comes close to our suffering, to our story, who steps into our deepest hungers for what is right and good, who meets us in our frustrations around our limitations, and who offers us his everlasting hope as our redeemer and friend. And just as the arrival of Jesus brought forth this song of declaration from Mary about how rulers would fall and how the low would be lifted high, what Jesus did is still bringing hope for us in this world today. And our hope in this baby Jesus that we're focused on in this season points us also to our hope in his second coming. As we look ahead to that day that Jesus promised in Revelation 21, a day that he would wipe away every tear, a day that he would end, that when death and mourning and sorrow would be no more, when the old order of things would be no more, that he is making all things new. But again, the hard part of hoping 
is waiting. Even though we know the end of the story, that death will not win, that evil will not conquer, that the darkness will not overtake the light, we're still in the middle of this story. We're still in the middle of each of our own stories with our own experiences of suffering and pain, our own experiences of hunger for what is good and right, and our own experiences of our limitations that lead us to humility. And as we wait in this darkness, would we consider that our hunger and our humility are leading us towards a renewed sense of hope? The hope that Christ has come, that Christ will come again, and that he is here with us now in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our hunger. I want to end our time together by reading this prayer that was posted on Noah's Instagram this past week. And I'll pause after each line as we simply reflect on what's coming up in our own stories, in our own minds. And if you ever, um, with whatever hunger is coming up or whatever thoughts on hope or prayer is coming up, I'd encourage us each to even consider meeting with another person in this community or another friend. Just as Mary went to Elizabeth, we can also go to the body of Christ as we navigate what hope looks like in this world. So I'll read these, this prayer. There's just three lines, and I invite us all to just take a moment to reflect on what is coming up in our own stories right now. God, we yearn for the restoration, justice, and peace that you promise. As we wait, we feel the ache for things to be made right in our worlds. Help us to find hope in the anticipation of your coming and the fulfillment of your promises. In the name of the one who has come and will come again, the one who brings hope to the hopeless and light to darkness, in the name of the one who is here with us now, amen. Amen.